This will be the 25th episode of this podcast. Last week's podcast on Oscar Wilde was the fastest trending of all the podcasts so far. I'm pleased, too, that the international audience is growing. Last week, we had listeners in France, England, Russia and China, the Netherlands, Canada, Germany, Sweden, Israel, Chile, Mexico, and Ecuador. Awesome. I keep hoping for Antarctica and Mongolia. And, of course, most all of the United States are represented, too. I have good news and bad news. The bad news is I can't do part two of Oscar Wilde today, but the good news is that I will upload it by Friday of this week. The other bit of good news is that I have an interview to share with you with Susan Cain, the author of the blockbuster book of the decade, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Besides having a super bestseller in many languages, Susan has one of the top all-time most-watched TED Talks on YouTube. A lot of quiet people loved her book and her insights, and I think you will too. So I'm going to share my interview with her. One reason Oscar is delayed is because I was putting the finishing touches on my new book, Stories from Texas, Some of Them Are True, Volume 2, so it could be launched on Kindle yesterday. So the Kindle version is out now, and the hardback and paperback and audiobook will be published in early June. If you have an interest in Stories from Texas, some of them are true, Volume 2, you can download it right now on Amazon. Although I know some of you in Russia and China and far-flung countries might have difficulty with the platform. I'm, I know there are restrictions and things, even in Australia, so I never understand why, but they exist. Anyway, that's my excuse for not getting my Oscar Wilde homework done in time. As always, you can write to me anytime at wfstrongpodcast at gmail.com. That's wfstrongpodcast at gmail.com. Love hearing from you. I answer every letter I get. So here's Susan. Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm very good. How are you, William? I'm just curious one thing. Now, you're a professed, a self-professed introvert, right? Yep, that's right. And now, because of this book, you've been pushed into the world of extroverts a bit, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's been that's been kind of a funny process. Funny people would sometimes say to me, gosh, you know, it's taking you so long to write this book, and <laughs> don't you feel like that's such a long time? I just loved it, and, and I think I, in some ways I wanted to put off the moment where I had to go out and talk about it. Um, although now that I'm doing it, I find I enjoy it, but... Um, but, you know, I was kind of dreading it initially. Well, you've been everywhere. You've been on all the morning talk shows and um, CBS, ABC, et cetera. You, you've been doing this for four months now, right? Yeah, since January. Um, so, yeah, a lot of TV, a lot of radio um, internationally. Yeah, it's been quite a trip. I noticed that uh, in January you were listed on Amazon's Best Books of the Month. And then you were in the top ten for uh, New York Times bestseller list of nonfiction, and then you, and you are today number nine. I last checked, and then you were in the, everybody's top ten list. So has it surprised you at all this this enormous success of of your work? Well, I mean, I think something like at, at the scale that this is mm -hmm. that has always got to surprise you. Um, yeah, so absolutely. Um, I, you know, I guess I can say on the other hand, I I know from all the years that I spent researching this book and talking to people all over the country, I, I know how deeply people feel about this subject. Mm -hmm. So from that point of view, it's not surprising because, you know, anywhere I went, all I had to do was say the title of my book. You know, the full title is 
it's quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. And all I, like literally I would just say that title and, and um, confessions would pour forth from people <laughs> um, about their experiences of being an introvert in an extroverted world. And, and often these confessions came from really quite unlikely people, you know, people who seemed very extroverted and, uh, and not, uh, not struggling with these kinds of issues. Well, one of the reasons I picked up the book is that um, I just read an excerpt of it, and it validated something for me that I've noticed for a long time. I've been teaching college classes for many years, and I've had noticed this phenomenon, that the people who are the most talkative, most um, seemingly analytical and understanding of the material, when it comes to exams, they are not the people who ace the exams. The person who aces the exams is someone often I haven't particularly noticed. They're the quiet person in the corner. And, uh, and so it, you know, your book validated that for me. I said, you know, that's true. The, 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 the quiet ones are often the ones who quietly master the material yeah, at a level yeah. that few people do. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, this is one of the aspects of our culture that really drives me bananas. You know, mm-hmm. it was one of the fuels for me to write this book that it, it just seems so plain to see. And, and then I learned through my research that there have been experiments confirming it. Um, that there are a lot of ways to process material, and often processing it deeply is something that we do internally without speaking, and yet we place so much emphasis in this society on class participation and on speaking your thoughts out loud as if that somehow makes them uh, better or even makes them exist in the first place. Um, and, you know, I, I really, I, it, certainly it does quiet people a disservice, but I think it does us all a disservice because... As a society, what we need is the best of people's brains, right? You yes. Um, that, 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 that serves us all well. Um, and yet we are setting things up so that we get the best of the most talkative people's brains. But this, and, the, uh, the smartest person in the room is often silenced. Yeah, exactly. I know I mean, sometimes the smartest person is also the best talker. Yes. Um, but what the, what the studies show is that there's just no correlation. Um, mm-hmm. So that, uh, the best talker might indeed be the smartest person, and they might indeed not be. Um, and yet we treat them always as if they are. Yes. And, and I think also that the, the extrovert, the great talker, let's say, is one who has learned that that is their skill. And I think that they don't put the time into the other things that would uh, make them stronger because of that particular talent. That is such a good point. I think you're right. Um, I, I think you're right. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because introverts and extroverts have the same IQ. There, there's no difference in intelligence between the two. Um, and yet introverts often get better grades and more scholarships and this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, one reason for that is that you have only so many hours in a day and you, you allocate them. We all allocate them in different ways. So if one person is allocating them to socializing and another person is allocating them to reading, well, that that, that takes you into, th- those are two different paths that take you to very different places, even if you're starting off with the same general intelligence. You went to Harvard Law School. Yep, I sure did. Is it particularly difficult uh, in a school that um, pays tribute to extroversion to survive in that in that law school culture? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I guess it's all relative. Um, you know, in the book, I... Uh, I actually spent some time visiting Harvard Business School, which, mm-hmm. in contrast to the law school, I would say Harvard Business School is about 
the most extroverted place on earth. <laughs> so, <laughs> relatively speaking, Harvard Law School seems like, you know, a bastion of quiet contemplation. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, it, it, it really is actually a more scholarly environment. And yes, you have to go into large classrooms and be able to, to you know, speak when you're called on in those classrooms. Um, yet the overall atmosphere is quite scholarly. You know, um, trying to remember now if we were graded on class participation, but if we were, it was a very minimal part of our grade. Right. I think it, I think it was really based on exams. Right. Um, and so, you know, it was considered normal to like leave class and then go off and spend your day studying. Um, whereas at the business school, in contrast, um, all the work is done in groups. You, you, you're not actually allowed to study alone. You're supposed to prepare in what's called a learning team. Um, and 50% of your grade is class participation. Mm-hmm. So, 50%? Uh, Fifty percent, fifty percent, yeah, yeah, and also, and a, and probably an even larger percentage of your social status. You know, the, the the students who are admired are the ones who really can speak forcefully and wittily and all the rest. Um, and it, it's it's a hard place for a quieter person. Whereas Harvard Law School, surprisingly, wasn't as much that way. Well, I'm thinking a little bit of things like uh, moot court and and uh, that that sort of thing. And you may yeah. not have even had that there. Um, no, you're right. We did have that. And you know mm-hmm. what? I was in law school a long time ago. But mm-hmm. you're reminding me now that <laughs> when I had to do those things, actually, um, they were very scary. Um, you know, because, well, there's a difference between shyness and introversion. But yes. I, so I'm definitely an introvert. I'm also pretty shy when it comes to public speaking. Um, so for that kind of thing, I, yeah, I always had to steal myself. And it was, it was quite scary. Um, Well, there's so much that I want to talk to you about because this book resonated with me on so many levels. I'm sure it has many for many people. But the the uh, part of the book that I found fun and amusing and insightful was when you went to the Tony Robbins uh, seminar on on. uh, It's a seminar on how to unleash the power within. mm -hmm. Um, So just you know a seminar on personal power, Um, but. In practice, what what that ended up meaning, I mean, there were a lot of aspects to it, but one of the things that ended up meaning was um, how to present yourself in a way that was very forceful and charismatic. Mm-hmm. And so, so it, it was to open up the extrovert in you. Yeah. You know, again, like, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that Tony Robbins would say that. And in fact, at one point he explicitly said this. This isn't about being an introvert or extrovert. I'm, I'm guessing he said that because he must have heard in the past that um, his style is, is a very extroverted one. Well, that's um, what I'd say, too, if I were trying to sell tickets. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I sympathize with your situation because I'm largely an extrovert, I suppose, And uh, but even your description of that would have uh, uh, been difficult for me. I would have said, this is over the top. I can't do this. Yeah, it was a really funny thing, you know, um, uh, for people who haven't read the book yet it's, or gone to one of his seminars. You know, it, it's a room full of thousands of people, literally. It's a great hall. It's mm-hmm. filled with thousands of people, and uh, you you spend your entire time. It's, literally, it's 15 hours a day. Um, you spend the whole time sort of singing and dancing oh. and voting oh, and doing personal exercises. That is my idea of, of a personal hell right there. <laughs> <laughs> 15 hours singing and dancing. No, 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 no. No, couldn't do it. The uh, but I'm I'm so glad that you talked about it and it was so brave of you as uh, as one who describes herself as shy to do that. 
Uh, well, thank you. You know, one of the great funny things about journalism is you can do almost anything in the name of journalism. Mm-hmm. You know, you're there kind of not as yourself. You're there as a, you're there to find out what's going on. Um, and you know, one interesting thing is, I would say you, you just described yourself as an extrovert, but I would say the great majority of people who have interviewed me for this book in broadcast journalism mm-hmm. tell me that they're introverts. Yes. Um, and and when you think about it, it makes sense because. What introverts do really well is ask really good questions and listen carefully to the answers, and that's such a big part of being a journalist. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you're at a Tony Robbins seminar or um, or conducting an interview, as you're doing now. Well, I I do agree that I certainly have elements of that because when I read your book uh, and and uh, you know you have those lists of of uh, criteria criteria that uh, help you realize which side of the fence you're on, so to speak. Uh, Certainly the one about uh, if you have a weekend with nothing to do, does that make you happy? And uh, an idea, a weekend alone to read a book like yours is my idea of a great time. So <laughs> so I, I clearly have uh, introversion as a, as a leaning, in, uh, at least situationally. Right, right. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, and I think a lot of people do. Um, I mean, we, we I, you know, we all have some of the other side in us, too. So, like, even at that Tony Robbins seminar, like, I actually really like to dance. So, uh-huh. even though I was feeling this great aversion to the whole tone of the seminar, mm-hmm. like, every so often I'd get really into the dancing. Like, okay, <laughs> I actually really like this. <laughs> and those are very expensive seminars, right? Oh, man, yeah, yeah. Uh, the cheap seats where I was, uh, at least back then, I, I did this a few years ago now, um, it was about $895. Oof. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and then there were more expensive seats where you can sit closer to Tony Robbins himself, mm-hmm. and those went for thousands of dollars. And then, you, and then he has a, a kind of private life coaching seminar that's in like 20000 or something. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're all different. Uh, what they said, the seminar that I went to, um, which was a sort of three- or four-day affair, 15 hours a day, he called that the kindergarten one. They're, they're <laughs> accelerating seminars that you can go to beyond that. Uh, and Yeah, and they cost 10 or 20 there, There's one where it's really personal, and that costs more than $50,000. Um, so, yeah. Well, the other element that struck me here was when you talked about Dale Carnegie and the paradigm shift that went on from uh, character as a primary value in in American culture to uh, something that we might describe as personality, a a cult of personality. We shifted somewhere along the line. And uh, I related to that very much because, well, I have a background in uh, rhetoric and public address. And so I've looked at Carnegie and his impacts and the Chautauqua movement and all of that. And uh, so I just thought this is very um, insightful of you to see that shift that was going on. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, I found this incredibly interesting. Um, One of the things I did when I researched the book, I wanted... I wanted to understand our culture, you know, and how it came to favor extroversion so much in the first place. Mm-hmm. And um, and what I learned is that in the early days of this culture, you know, we, we, we always, to some extent, liked an extrovert because um, we were, were founded on Greco-Roman roots, right? Um, yes. So these are societies that favored oratory, that we lived in what historians call a culture of character. We, we were living in small towns alongside people we had known all our lives. And and so this meant that people were judged by who they really were. You know, you, you knew somebody really well, so you knew is this a good a good person or not? Um, do they have good character or not? But then, 
in the, around the turn of the 20th century, people started leaving these small towns and going out into the cities. And suddenly they're, they're surrounded by crowds of strangers. No one knows who they are. And what becomes important is the ability to charm people, um, you know, at, when you're making a good, to make a good first impression. So to be more superficially charming. Um, so that's when we entered what was called the culture of personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dale Carnegie is, is a really interesting example of this shift because he was a boy kind of at the end of the culture of character. Um, he grew up in a, a, a very small town living on a farm, um, and he decided that his ticket out of this life was to learn to become a great public speaker. But he he actually wasn't a good speaker, and he just practiced and practiced until until he was good enough. Um, and then he got a job as a traveling salesman and ultimately ended up in New York City where he started teaching public speaking to other people who themselves had had, had to make this journey. Um, and that's when he started writing his famous books, in, including How to Win Friends and Influence People, yes. which was written more than 75 years ago, but is still today around number 200 on Amazon. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it just has uh, real staying power, doesn't it? It sure does. It sure does. And that's because we are still, the, the, you know, the culture of personality that was born around the time of Dale Carnegie's adulthood, we're still living with it today. Well, you know what I thought of as I was reading your book is the Boy Scouts were founded about, you know, the turn of the century, little, uh, and, and the Boy Scout laws are all about character. You know, that you are to be courteous, kind, friendly, thrifty, mm. brave, clean, reverent. All, all the Boy Scout laws are about character and modesty. Isn't that interesting, huh? Yeah, that's very interesting. And I, you know, I suppose that's still true today. It's not as if, um, as if character is gone from our culture. It's no, it isn't. The, but, but it's certainly personality have become so all-consuming. But it's certainly when you try to sell Boy Scouts to boys of today, many of them immediately say that's boring, because yeah, they're, right. they they always connect things to. You know, if it's just about building character, that's dull, you know. Yeah, isn't that true? That is so interesting. I, I want to build a personality, you know, a cool that's Facebook right. page. I want to have, uh, you know, dominance in, in my little cultural world. Yeah, that is so true. Um, you know, and you could really see this shift if you look at the self-help books from the culture of character. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the great uh, best-selling writers was a guy named Horizon Sweat Martin, and he wrote a best-selling book called Character, The Grandest Thing in the World. Mm-hmm. And that same writer, at, during the 20th century, you know, decades later, wrote a, a different best-selling book, and that one was called Masterful Personality. How interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was full of lessons about how to be a mighty, likable fellow. <laughs> <laughs> Now that that you've uh, been on the circuit, do do they give you? Uh, I mean, on the promotions publicity tour, uh, do they give you any pep talk about that sort of thing? Well, I mean, like everybody else uh, who goes on a book tour, I had media training, mm-hmm. um, so I guess you could call that a pep talk. I mean, I think the funny thing is that um, people ask me all the time, "Oh my God, what's it like to be an introvert on book tour?" Mm-hmm. The truth is, probably eighty percent of book writers are introverts, if not more. Um, so they're all going through this. They just don't talk about it out loud, and no one asks them about it. But, um, you know, I, I, I think in a way the reason this book has struck such a chord is because it's talking about things that we ha- that, that so many people feel and don't feel permission to say. Well, that's a great way to put it. They don't feel permission to talk about it. Well, what I, what I came away from was this this idea that 
new to my thinking, but validated when I think about uh, what I see going on in colleges is that that we try to teach people who are introverts that there's something wrong with them, that they need to come out of their shell, that we need to fix them. And I think they get that message implicitly and explicitly uh, in many colleges. Oh, gosh, yeah. I, you know, I think they get that message from the time they're three years old and it continues through when they're in college and then they keep getting it uh, once they're in the workplace. Yeah, I think people get it again and again. Um, and, 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 and it's really a shame. Um, you know, I get, I get letters all the time from people who tell me about their childhoods and uh, you know, parents who would say to them, why can't you be more like your extroverted sister? Uh-huh. And that kind of thing really cuts deep. You know, kids kids take that stuff seriously, and they learn there's something wrong with me. I don't I don't want to talk as much, and that is bad. Well, what is your advice to parents who have uh, a quiet child, so to speak? Uh, and you, your advice is what? Well, my advice is to take delight in that child for who they are, um, to give them the quiet time that they want, to um, to let them recharge. Um, it, it is important for kids to have friendships, but you really need, according to psychologists, children really only need one or two friendships to have a happy life, mm-hmm. um, you know, and to learn to learn what friendship means. So if, if you see that your child wants to have more friends, that's one thing. Um, but for the parent not to project onto the child expectations or desires that the parent themselves has. Um, I, I also think it's important for introverted kids to develop passions, you know, things that they really care about and are good at. Um, now, that's important for all children, for all humans, but for introverted kids in particular, because they're often not, they're not drawn to participate in a group for its own sake, mm-hmm. um, but often they will, it, but, but if they're interacting with other, other people through a shared passion, the friendships kind of come through that, and it becomes a world of mastery and a world of, of social delight for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it could really be a ticket. I wonder if we should do, uh, to any extent, not, not to reverse the bias, but you know, I, I know kids who who need some quiet time. You know, they need the opposite. They're too pumped up, too extroverted. Yeah. <laughs> they need some contemplation time. Yeah, I know that's absolutely true. And uh, you know, it's funny because nowadays the trend in schools is to teach everything in groups, in big, noisy groups. Mm-hmm. And um, I've had parents of extroverted children say to me that they're worried about their kids because the kids don't know how to work on their own and don't want to work on mm-hmm. their own, and the schools aren't teaching them to do it. Um, so they come home and they're faced with homework, and they you know, they can't sit still by themselves long enough to get it done. And so I, I think we're doing those children a real disservice because, you know, of course, many... Um, many great crafts, like to develop expertise at anything often requires being able to sit still and focus. So just the way introverts sometimes have to act more extroverted, extroverts sometimes need to act more introverted. Yes, I was very pleased recently. I took my son, my uh, 11-year-old, to see uh, The Hunger Games. Uh-huh, and, uh-huh. and he's just getting to the point where he reads for enjoyment. You know, he's read, I think, maybe three books. And right after the Hunger Games, after he saw that, he had me drive him immediately to go buy the second book. Ah. And, and I loved that. I, I was so excited, you know, because I said, oh, my goodness, if, if he can discover the thrill of quiet reading 
this this will be a huge joy in his life, you know. Yes, exactly, exactly. You know, it, you're very rarely uh, bored or lonely if you love to read. Oh, it's true. Yes, yes, absolutely. I spent a I went on Fulbright to Africa some years ago, and I read more in that one year because there was you know no no TV. Well, there was TV, but not TV I would watch. All I had was books, and so I, I read probably 15 novels in, in that year. Oh, I, that sounds just fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like your kind of thing, right? It does sound like my kind of thing. And it's funny, you know, ironically, it's not something I get to do right now because I also have two small children. Mm-hmm. So I have two children and, uh, and a very insane, intense book tour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't get to read that much. And but do, I'm dying to just sit on the porch. Well, the other uh, part of, I mean, there's so many parts of the book that just that we could talk about each one for hours, of course. But the I'm talking about the points that kind of snapped my head with insight. And the, the other one that blew my mind was the training of Asians to be extroverts. And in business, oh, in the business yeah. world, that's so fascinating. Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I spent a whole chapter comparing... Uh, you know, Far Eastern culture with Western culture, mm-hmm. and of course, um, in many Asian cultures, it's much more permissible and and valuable to be quiet. Um, but what's happening is some Asians are coming over to the states for business and finding that this more reserved style is not getting them so far, and so they're enrolling in um, in classes that teach them the ways of of the extroverted business world. You know, and they're learning. Literally, like how to, how to speak more loudly, how to speak more confidently, how to speak more assertively, and it's not natural necessarily because they come from societies where it is considered to be a, a sign of restraint yes. and wisdom and judiciousness to be able to be more quiet. It's painful to watch them try to make that conversion. Yeah, I think it's painful for anybody to mm-hmm. make a conversion to something that they're not. You know, mm-hmm. it's true. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's something that many of us go through at some point in our lives. Yeah, I, you know, I think I think a large uh, amount of it is culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I spent a whole, well, I have a whole chapter in the book where I um, talk about the time I spent in Cupertino, California, which is a largely Asian American community. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's really interesting there. I, I interviewed a lot of high school students who um, were really, really strong students academically. And, we often talk about um, how Asian students are, are, are so academically strong and why is it that, that they do better than American students. Um, and, and one thing I think we don't realize as part of that, uh, the equation is that culturally in Far, East, in, in Far Eastern cultures, it is acceptable to sit still and put your head down and study. Um, you know, it's not seen as nerdy or if it is seen as nerdy, like nerdy is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, like one, one kid said to me, in our school, the kids who are smart—that that's a cool thing to be. So if you do well, other kids want to be friends with you. Well, that's quite a difference uh, from yeah. many of our schools, unfortunately. Exactly. The, and thank you so much, Susan, for joining us today. Thank you so much, William. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.